so thankful for all that God is doing, thankful for traditional Christmas hymns and new ones as well. I know some of these are unfamiliar to you, uh, but we'll sing all through this month of the birth of our Savior and how that has just been a life-changing event. It's a history-changing event. Nothing greater than all of this, all, all that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, it looks like today is the day that my wife becomes a grandmother. How about that? Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we've been anticipating this particular day. We received a text early this morning that our son and daughter-in-law are at the hospital. Uh, that's in Birmingham, Alabama, so we're just going to have to rely on FaceTime and other things. But God willing, we will make a trip. Of course, we are praying for our daughter-in-law, Emily, and the baby to come through the delivery as easily as possible and praying that our son Luke will know the Lord's presence. Um, it's an exciting day. But i got to tell you, the thing, one of the things I'm most eager to learn is the name that they have chosen for this son because they haven't shared it with any of us yet. And, of course, some of us are trying to guess, and we have a few educated you know, guesses, but there's just no way to even know. Now, part of what makes me excited to hear uh, is that for Luke and Emily, the name has been a really important thing. Uh, and as it is for most parents, I mean, few parents carelessly name a child, although you do hear a few stories. <laughs> uh, but they have uh, cho- chosen a name that from their perspective uh, is a testimony not only of their faith, but has a prophetic quality to it. And by that, I mean they... They are choosing a name that they hope God will honor as, as this young man grows to maturity and we trust will find Jesus at an early, early age and then begin to serve him. There's great spiritual significance for it. And if you knew our son Luke, that would not surprise you, you know, that he would think something through so carefully. And they're not the first parents who have chosen a name for their child. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're just the latest in a long, long line of parents who see significance. And in the passage before us today in Luke 1, there's a couple that has an opportunity to name a child, except God shows up and says, no, I've already picked out the name for your son, and here's what it is. As has already been mentioned, we're beginning a series in Luke today, but I'm bypassing, bypassing the opening parts of Luke's gospel. We'll actually come back to that in January, but we're just going to dive headlong into the Christmas story as we often refer to it and catch the really important prologue in chapter 1 where God actually reveals to us through Luke that there was a, another son born at a very specific time for a very specific purpose, and it begins to generate the excitement for the birth of God's one and only son. So I'm actually going to begin reading in Luke's gospel, chapter 1 and verse 5, and we'll save the introductory part where Luke explains some things about how we have ended up with this particular gospel. Uh, We'll probably come back to that, and we may even wait until January. If you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find the gospel of Luke on page 855, and I want to invite you to read along. Let your eyes see the words that you're about to hear as well. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5 and read through verse 25. This is God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, 
and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we praise your name for the gift that your word is. And we ask that you would open our hearts by the sovereign and personal, tender ministry of the Spirit these words are spiritually discerned. We need so much more than just the power of a mind or intellect to grasp all that is beautifully uh, prepared for us in this word. And so I ask that you, by your spirit's presence and ministry, would come to each of us right now. Open our hearts that we may believe all that you have recorded for us. Open our minds that we may grasp the powerful, life-changing truths that are recorded here for us. And we pray that you would move our wills, that we might eagerly submit to your word and your work and do all that you have called us to. We pray these things in great hope and expectation. In the name of Jesus, your only begotten Son and our only Savior. Amen. As you read through this particular portion of Luke's gospel, it's easy to skip over a very simple phrase right here at the outset of verse 5. 
and I want you to set your heart on it with me for just a moment because Luke begins this narrative by saying, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. You know, this is an extraordinary moment, but it is not unlike the one we are living in. It's, as I said, easy to read right over that small phrase without giving any thought of what it meant for people like Zechariah and Elizabeth or others that we will meet in the course of this gospel. For us, it reads like a bit of a footnote, but for the people living in those days, those few words evoked dark and even sorrowful, painful memories. Sixty years from now, When other generations have been born and follow us, if someone were to say, you know, in the days of Joe Biden, President of the United States, we who've lived through the difficulty of pandemics and economic stress and all kinds of other cultural pressures and difficulties would say, oh, wow, what a season that was. Herod was not a Jew. He was Idumean by birth. Now, that's just a a different version to describe those who were from the ancient land of Edom. And if you know your Old Testament, the Edomites were people who historically were hostile to Israel. When Herod's father was assassinated in 40 BC, he fled to Rome where only a year later he was granted the governorship in Galilee. He ruled for the next 35 years. He married 10 women and fathered 15 children. He was known as a paranoid tyrant. To give you one example, his second wife, Mariame, suffered greatly at his hands. Herod had both of her parents killed for fear of their rivalry to his power. And after learning that she was dissatisfied with his leadership, he had her tried and executed. And while it is reported that he mourned her death for many months, he later ordered the execution of the two sons that were born to him through her because they were sympathetic with their mother and he was suspicious that they were maneuvering for his governorship. At the time of their execution, he rounded up 300 of their closest associates and also had them put to death so that he could eliminate any threat to his rule. So at the time of our story, there is a third son, Antipater, and you have likely heard of him because he will appear in the biblical account later. Antipater is plotting his own father's assassination and overthrow. And so from the position of Jewish people like Zechariah and Elizabeth in the late first century B.C., this is about the year 5, maybe 6 B.C., Herod is a visible reminder to them that they are no longer a nation under God. The theocracy that it once was has been all but destroyed, and they are occupied by a ruthless military, a pagan government, and a paranoid murdering king. So to say that this was a time of national distress is a bit of understatement. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me, if you will, please. After introducing us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke includes this very brief word of description and summary for their lives. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Let's pause there and consider what the Lord himself is testifying about this couple through Luke. 
Well, despite the difficulty of that particular day, and despite the fact that Israel is not governed uh, in the way it was originally set up and designed by God to be governed, here you have a couple whose lives are marked by righteousness, first of all, and that simply means they order their lives according to God's standards. And when I say standards, you, you must immediately think it's the word of God. They, now, they would have only had the Old Testament at that point, but they take God's word seriously. When God says, do this, apparently they're the kind of people who say, then we will do it. And when God says, don't do this, they're the kind of people who don't do those things. They're righteous. The second word that Luke includes here is walking blamelessly. That is, they're people of integrity. Oh, they're not perfect, Their lives are not faultless and completely blameless, but if you followed them around day after day, you would not find those deep character flaws that would make you say, oh, you know, the face they put on in public is not actually what you find in private. No, these are people who, in the very real sense, are godly and mature. They've ordered their lives according to God's word. They are living a life of integrity before him. Now look at verse 7 but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. As we consider these scriptures and consider what it means for a woman of of the Jewish culture to be childless, it's clear to us that there's great personal pain. Did you know that childlessness was generally associated with God's discipline and judgment? It's more than just a cultural expectation that a woman like her would have a child. But for those words, barren, and then there's another word in verse 36 that we didn't get to, but Luke uses the word a reproach. Elizabeth sees her own childlessness as a reproach to bear. It was considered a disgrace. Now, it's easy for us to dismiss this as an outdated cultural viewpoint, but it's a difficult thing for a godly couple to bear. People who, like many of us, know what the first book of the Bible says, right? When God calls us into marriage, he says, be fruitful and multiply. He's serious about that, and godly people would take that seriously. So you layer that into the the cultural expectations that they are living in, and it's no wonder that you sense, as you read these few words, that this is a very difficult thing for them. You know, humanly speaking, this doesn't add up, right? Aren't good things supposed to happen to good people? Sometimes. We just finished the series in Ecclesiastes. We saw the king of Israel wrestling with the great discrepancies of life. Oppression and injustice. Righteous people who die way too young. Unrighteous people who live way too long. Yeah, it's a difficult world and life we live. But to add to this, as if to just remove any sense of hope at this particular point, Luke also notes of this couple, they are advanced in years. They're old. Humanly speaking, time has run out. You know, as you read this, you feel a sense of sadness and hopelessness in your own heart, don't you? Yeah, it's it's a time of distress, in the land, and it's a time of inexplicable personal pain. But look at verse 8. Press on with me, please. 
As we read verse 8 into verse 9, we see something extraordinary happening that Zechariah, the faithful, righteous priest who is serving along with the the division of priests that he was a part of. Verse 9 says, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. You know, nowhere in the Bible does it actually explain the specifics of casting lots. It just refers to it. A passage like Proverbs 16 actually reminds us that the the lot is cast into the lap. It's like, you know, if you just roll the dice, uh, every decision is from the Lord. So it may look random to us when the lot is cast, but from God's perspective, it's not random. They're divine decisions that have already been made and ordered, and that's the sense we have here. Now, to give you a little more understanding, it's estimated that there were about 18,000 priests in Israel in that day. So I don't know how many times, if they were rolling dice or, you know, you know, drawing the short straw or the long straw or whatever it was, like how many rounds they had to go through. But you can begin to understand why many recognize in studying the context and looking at what was transpiring at that point that for him to be chosen, which Luke is saying, it clearly was God who pulled this one out of thousands out for this particular moment. God has chosen Zechariah for this moment. So it really is the privilege of a lifetime. It's a moment of privileged ministry. Now, let me describe to you, because this is so foreign for the vast majority of us that we can't really appreciate the responsibility that was entrusted to Zechariah. So on the particular day where his opportunity came up to go into the holy place, and and that is a, a, a room that is built just outside of the holy of holies. So don't confuse those two. Holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant Uh, rested for many years, although at this point, the the ark is gone. But the Holy of Holies had, or the holy place, uh, had other furnishings in it, and what Zechariah was tasked to do was to enter the holy place and offer this sacred incense on coals that would be brought from the altar outside by another assistant and spread out on a table, and then with the assistance of a second uh, partner, in this, Zechariah would have the privilege of spreading the incense over those coals where they would ignite, causing a cloud to arise, and it was a fragrant, a visible sign of the prayers of God's people ascending. And Luke even notes, notes that while Zechariah was in there, the whole crowd was gathered outside. So he's representing uh, his people in this sacred moment. And not only was he expected to offer a prayer Uh, in that sacred space, but he was also expected to come out of the holy place when he had finished all of that work and pray Aaron's prayer of blessing over them. And you go back to the Old Testament and read through the prayer of blessing that Aaron offered over the people. So all of this was just a really glorious moment. And as noted here, it's it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for a priest like Zechariah. So picture this based on what we read earlier. At that particular moment though, as he stands in the holy place, his world would have been illuminated only by the seven flames of the sacred lampstand and the veil of the holy of holies would have been just to his left and the altar of incense there before him, suddenly, as Luke records, to the right of the altar, an angel appears. That's not good news. 
And in all the history of the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and, and moments like these of prescribed worship that God gave to Moses long ago, there's not one record of an angelic being appearing in the holy place when the priest of God is there. And no wonder, as Luke records here, Zechariah was troubled. Man, that's big time understatement. And even to read that fear fell upon him, there was a holy terror We don't have time to fully develop this, but isn't it interesting in that famous portion of Luke 2 where the angelic messenger comes to the shepherds and then is joined by this heavenly host as it's described, it says that the shepherds were terribly afraid. And when you begin to read the accounts through the scriptures of human beings like us encountering even the holy messengers, angels who've been sent from heaven, these aren't warm, fuzzy moments. They're Moments that are filled with terror because those messengers come with the glory of God, representing the message of God, and often are shining brightly as they radiate the glory of God. And when you're not a perfectly holy, radiant person yourself, what do you become aware of in the presence of another holy, radiant being? Your sin. Yeah. Now, Luke doesn't record this, but I'm sure that in that moment, Zechariah is thinking, this is not good. But look at the words of the angel. Verse 13, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And then he gives them very specific reasons to not be afraid, and he's drawing the attention away, even from Zechariah's imperfection and, and the lack of perfect holiness that he's probably painfully aware of, but he actually says to him, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now how remarkable is this? And this, beloved, begins to build a little bit of understanding for us Like, don't just put Zechariah in his own category and you say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. Notice notice the words of the angel again. Your prayer has been heard. And we know what prayer he's talking about. It's a prayer specifically for a son. But my question at this point, and, and we've had opportunity in years past to work through this at Gospel Hope, so if you heard this before, and some of you did, bear with me, but for others, you may not have thought about this in this way. If he's an old man, is he still praying that Elizabeth would have a son? And if she's advanced in years, and that's a polite way of saying she's also old, is it possible that he actually stopped praying? Humanly speaking, that would be reasonable, wouldn't it? You would just say, oh, well, I, I guess that's not God's will for us. But the angel says to him, God has heard your prayers. Some of you have prayed about things for a long time and to date there's no answer. And as a matter of fact, some of you may have shelved those prayers because after praying for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you're like, oh, well, I guess that's God's answer. Is it? We don't know how long Zechariah prayed, but God heard every one of them. And God actually was intent on giving him a greater answer than he could fathom It just meant waiting a greater period of time than he had hoped. Well, here's a second thing. Look at the second half of verse 13. You shall call his name John. And and that is a beautiful name, simple name. It's a common name even in our day and age. Did you know that it means Yahweh or Jehovah 
is gracious. Oh, that, that almost, I want to be careful when I say this, but put yourself in Zachariah's place. You'd almost say, like, I, I want to believe this, but this is, mm, I don't know. And I've really wrestled with, is, is Yahweh gracious? Because we've lived a long time. My, war, my wife has borne reproach in her barrenness. But the angel is telling him straight up, God has heard your prayers and God is answering in such a way where you're not even gonna have the privilege of naming your son. God has already designated him by this chosen name because he wants him to be a man who throughout his life and ministry will remind people continually, Yahweh is gracious. So there's a name chosen by God. Secondly, there's a work designated for this son by God. Look at verse 15. And and what an amazing summary of this man's life. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And there's an echo of some of the Nazarite vows that the, some of the Old Testament saints were called uh, to perform. So he's gonna be separated from much of life and culture and, and some of the daily norms uh, that under other circumstances would be fine. The, the angel continues, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And I, I mean, I just wonder how much of this was Zechariah actually catching in the moment. Would that not be overwhelming? And not just that the angel has a specific word of description saying this son who is designated for a very specific work by God uh, is gonna be born to you, but, but he actually begins making references to Malachi. That's why I asked Matt to read that before we took the offering together. And I know for some of you are like, that, that's an odd text to read right now. Now, I just wanted to fix that in your mind so you would recognize that as Zachariah stands there hearing this angel reveal the plan of God and the designated work of this particular son, and he begins to hear some of those very phrases from Malachi's prophecy quoted at that moment. He has to be thinking to himself, that's a 400-year-old prophecy, and not only am I about to have a son, but the son that God's gonna give to my dear wife and me is gonna be the fulfillment of God's word. Really? And then you cast it in its context that for 400 years, God has essentially been silent. He just hasn't been speaking. And generation after generation of people are called to believe, called to put their faith and trust in God, and the heavens are silenced. And he himself has been praying for decades, perhaps, God, give us a son, and the heavens are silent. But in a moment, the heavens break open, and the word of God comes forth, and he realizes this God is faithful in fulfilling his word, and he's doing a spectacular work that neither my wife nor I could ever fathom. And so he goes from the reasonable viewpoint that maybe God never intended us to have a son to seeing that God's eternal purpose before Zechariah and Elizabeth even had life. Because 400 years ago, he talked about the second Elijah through Malachi. He's like, wow, that's our son. Here's a second thought for you, though, that as spectacular as the fulfillment of this promise is, God's, God's using an ordinary person like Zachariah and Elizabeth. Just ordinary people. And that's one of the things that I want you to be impressed with as we move through the study of Luke's gospel in the coming year. 
Yes, the Christmas story. These are ordinary people. Zachariah and Elizabeth are righteous. They're people of integrity, but they're, they're not in a different category of, of spiritual people than those of us who fill the room. It's a reminder to me that we need not fear the present difficulties and disappointments we are facing because God's plan to make his name great and to fill his eternal purposes will not be stopped. It was unstoppable in Zechariah's generation despite a king like Herod, despite the Roman occupation, despite the personal uh, difficulties that he and his wife were having, and it's, it's unstoppable in our day. If a paranoid ruler like Herod could not thwart the work of Messiah, well, there's great hope for us. And I don't mean like, mm, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I mean like great confidence that there's, there's not a corrupted political system on planet Earth today that can stop God from fulfilling his purposes for our generation. And if old age and barrenness were no limitation to God's work the lifetime of reproach that they had carried, even their limited understanding, which we're gonna get to in just a moment, then neither will ours. Because God actually had an eternal purpose, do you see this? To give joy. Ordinary people, he delights to give joy. And what a joy, what gladness. This is part of the hope of the gospel, that the real sorrow, the real reproach, all of us carry to some extent, to some degree, whether it be our sin or sins against us, whether it be our frustrations and failures, there is coming a great day where God will appear and the joy and gladness will overflow and all of that sorrow and reproach and disappointment will be done. That's what God does. Now as we press on, it's a moment, uh, it's a moment for Zechariah. Look at verse 18 because, I mean, isn't this a reasonable question? How shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And she had taught him well. Don't ever refer to me as old. <laughs> we know from the angel's response that it is a question, though, of unbelief. And what a paradox that in the pinnacle moment of Zechariah's earthly ministry as a priest and in his old age after walking with God for many years, his faith actually falters. But it's so human. That's one of the reasons I, I just love God's word and I love the gospels because as I said, these are ordinary people like you and me and, and we should never be critical of a man like Zachariah because if he's standing there in the holy place face to face with an angel hearing this word and he also goes, ah, 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 really? You would not have said anything differently. But like us, and this is where we relate to him, he, he can only see himself at this moment in one sense. And I don't mean like in a sinful way, but here, here's what I do mean. He's looking at himself in all of the deficits. Uh, I'm old, Elizabeth is advanced in years. I've prayed for all these years without anything happening. We've tried for all these years and nothing has happened. Really? 
But beloved, God again brings an individual to a place and we've watched him do this all through the scriptures. He brings an individual face to face with all of those human deficits, including limited understanding, and reorients the individual. So Zechariah, like so many of us, needs to stop asking, am I able, am I enough, am I adequate, am I smart enough, and get the focus where it belongs, on the God who does impossible things. See, the question is not, is Zechariah able to father a son in his old age, or is Elizabeth able to conceive a son? No, the all-important question has to do with who is giving the promise? And can he be trusted to fulfill the promise? And the answers to both of those questions are simply, it's God who is promising, and yes, he can, and always does. So let's, let, look, look with me at the, at the nature of the divine promise, verse, eight, verse 19. I am Gabriel. And I think the last time Gabriel appeared is to Daniel. Go back and check that out. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you to bring this good news. Zechariah, it is good news. It's not even my message, Zechariah. I'm just the angelic messenger. I'm Gabriel. That would be a whoa moment for Zechariah. But God's will doesn't have to make perfect human sense for us to believe it and act upon it. The announcement may run beyond Zechariah's understanding, but it is not beyond a rational faith. For there are many things in the Christian life that are difficult for us to understand, but they are not irrational to believe. Don't make that mistake, friend. Well, until I can figure it all out, I don't know if I can believe it. Well, you'll never actually set foot outside of your house again if you have to figure it all out. Do you really understand everything that happens under your car engine before you put the key in and and turn it? So if you're gonna act that way about things like this, at least be consistent. That's a little bit of a jab, isn't it? But we sometimes have these crazy thoughts that until I can understand it fully, then I don't know. Listen, God's not asking you to to believe irrational things, but he is asking you to to walk by faith and acknowledge there are things that we can't fully understand or even explain. But he calls us to act. Now there there is a touch of discipline here. Look at verse 20. God gives this divine promise and not even Zachariah's faltering faith is gonna overthrow it. But he says to him, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. There, there's the verification, it's coming. Now remember, I told you a little bit about the responsibility a priest had. Like Zechariah, he'd go in, he'd offer the incense, he'd pray the appropriate prayers uh, in the holy place and then he'd come out and his next task was he was supposed to bless the people publicly. Well, that's not what happened, so is it? We'll skip over a little portion here. Go to verse 23 with me because what I want you to see is that as, as God is fulfilling his promise, not just to the couple, uh, but it's gonna go beyond that. Verse 24 says simply, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she rejoices in this. It seems like she's keeping it quiet for a number of months, but it says in verse 25 that God has taken away my reproach and then verse Go all the way over to 57. We didn't read to this point, but I I need you to turn there with me. I'm gonna summarize some things here very briefly. 
Verse 57 says she bore a son. Now she is the latest in a long line of women in the, in the Bible story who once endured the pain of childlessness but in time, according to God's grace and mercy, became mothers of important figures in the story of redemption. Sarah is one of the first we encounter. She gave birth to Isaac. Rachel gave birth to Joseph. Hannah gave birth to Samuel. The wife of Manoah, as she is referred to, gave birth to Samson. And here it's Elizabeth's turn. And all of these births were extraordinary. And notice what it says in verse 58. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. I think I'm falling behind here. There we go. Verse 59. And they would have named him Zechariah because that's what you did in those days frequently. You name your son, uh, name a son after the father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And Zechariah is finally able to speak, um, and he says, his name is John. Yahweh has been gracious. Look at the effect of this. I think it's verse 65. Fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? Because a birth of such extraordinary circumstances, a birth that can only be attributed to the most high God must have significance beyond the moment where we say, welcome to the world, John. And they're absolutely right. And that's what makes the next portion, the, the, the last section of chapter one so spectacular. Zechariah's prophecy actually answers that particular question. So let's look at that for just a few moments and highlight a couple of the themes. His father was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So here's the answer. What will this child be? Well, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Oh, the birth of this child is so much bigger than a barren husband and wife. There's bigger work that God is gonna do here. Verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This, this boy is gonna be mighty in the Lord. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Yeah, from through, through Moses going all the way back to Abraham. Now look at this. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Real quickly, quickly let me insert this. When you feel like your whole world is, de- is, is defined by and controlled by the Roman Empire, it's easy to be dismissive of some of those grand promises that say, no, God is king over all. God raises up one ruler and casts him down. God raises up nations as he will and casts them down. Because when you're under the thumb of Caesars and tyrants and local paranoid dictators like Herod, you have to wonder sometimes, is God really God? And then he shows up and says, oh, I am. That's just a little bit of what Zechariah is prophesying. Let's continue here. Verse 75, they're also gonna serve in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, 
Just imagine a father. I mean, some of you dads have prayed prayers of blessing over your sons who've been born. Man, any of you prayed quite like this? Makes me regret some of the early attempts that I made. Like, I should have just prayed this one straight out over my two boys in particular, right? But he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High God. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, we skipped over Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she would be the mother of the Christ, the Lord who's coming into the world. So we'll, we'll sort through some of the timeline here at this point. But do you understand what God is letting at least a little, a, 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 a little portion of that present generation uh, understand is that Messiah's coming. It's finally here. 400 years of silence. Where has God been? What's going on? You know, is Herod really, you know, the, the guy that we have to live in fear of or is there something else? And God is just stepping in and saying, I'm faithful to my promises. I'm gracious, I'm merciful. Salvation has come. What a moment. The prophet of the Most High. The one who will prepare the way. It is interesting through this prophecy that uh, Zechariah is led by the Spirit to mention the mercy of God multiple times and it's certainly one of the themes that you encounter in this uh, first story. The mercy, and, the mercy that Elizabeth and Zechariah received is a foretaste of the greater mercy coming into the world. And the dismal circumstances of their long days under Herod's madness and Rome's occupation are not actually the, the defining words of their existence but present grace but the present grace and mercy of God. You see, they, if they went back years after to retell the story and said, you know, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, they would not waste their time recounting the madness and paranoia of Herod. They would go straight to the work and word of God that they lived and experienced and that changed their world. And you know, years from now, some of us will have opportunity to tell our children and grandchildren of God's great work in the days of Joe Biden, President of the United States. And we'll do that because we have learned by faith to trust this inerrant, authoritative, perfect word of God, to believe his promises are true and to build our lives on those promises not on the changing circumstances of political cycles or of economic forecasts. But we are called to live our lives in the same way that Zachariah and Elizabeth were living them. I wonder if you have come to that place where you know and believe. You don't understand it all, but you know the very God that Zechariah and Elizabeth are watching work in their lives. Is he at work in yours? Because his eternal purpose of grace and the tender mercy that they experienced is the same grace and tender mercy that he offers to us right now. And we know that not just because this son of mercy was born, but because the greatest son ever born came into the world. So the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth stands forever over their lives, but it is unfurled by God, by the Spirit, as a great banner for us to look to and believe God is gracious and God is merciful. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Let's pray for a moment.
I wonder what the pressure points of your life are at this moment. It could run an almost identical path with Zachariah and Elizabeth that you, you actually feel the pressure of our nation's political and cultural turmoil. And you just say, I don't know how much more of this I can bear. Or maybe it's, you'd say, it's not, it's not the cultural turmoil of the moment. It's actually a personal pain similar to Zachariah's and Elizabeth's. There's a family relationship that is broken beyond repair, and it's all I can think about. I've begged God for decades to change this, and it just seems like heaven is silent. Or maybe even you would say, you know, I've failed in my faith. It's not even a a reasonable faltering like Zachariah's as he stood there in the holy place. I just actually abandon it. And maybe because you feel so disappointed or angry with God. So frustrated that your life hasn't run the course that you thought it would. What is the pressure point of your life that you believe really defines your existence? It's the thing that makes you question God's goodness. But my friend, you may have absolute confidence that in the same way he was at work, was hearing prayers, was fully purposing to answer them in his time, so God has not forgotten you and he's calling you to trust him. And the word he sent through Gabriel to Zechariah is a good word for you. Fear not. You must not be afraid because he is gracious and merciful. You must not be afraid because he is hearing your prayers and in his time will answer them mightily. You must not be afraid because he is gracious to ordinary people like you and me who just often feel like a number among the thousands, but you're not in his sight. You must not be afraid because he is the God who purposed long ago to save and forgive and pour out the tenderness of his mercy on the nations. And even as he promised through Zechariah, among other places, he loves to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and he loves to guide our feet into the way of peace. He will do that for you today. Will you call on him right now? From the secret place of your heart and soul, will you just call upon him and say, God, have mercy on me. I need the mercy of your forgiveness. I need the mercy of your comfort. I need the mercy of your assurance. I need the mercy of your provision. I need the mercy of your healing. I need the mercy of your restoration. I need you, God. I need you. Call to him. My friend, there's an opportunity after the service if you would like to pray with someone or if you'd like to discuss some of what we've looked at from the word of God. Maybe you have a follow-up question or maybe there's a point you're just saying, it still doesn't make sense to me. I'd like to know more. Oh, it would be a great joy for me, for others who are here to speak with you. And I'm gonna remain here near the front of the auditorium after the service. I'd love to talk with you.
But as you sense the Spirit of God leading you, moving you, follow him. So Spirit of God, do all your holy will. Come, holy, holy, holy Spirit. Come and save. Come and heal. Come and restore. Come and bless. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.